Seth. Good morning, everybody. What a wonderful blessing and privilege to be here with you this morning, as it always is. Before we uh, proceed with the sermon, let's go ahead and pray, if you don't mind, for the Lord's grace upon us uh, during this time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. Thank you for your, for your grace and your strength and your mercy that you give us as your people each and every day. Thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have been found by Him. And Lord, we are so grateful for that. We are so thankful for that. Thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling in us as your people. Thank you for giving us your Word that we are to grow in and that we are to base everything in our lives upon. That's the only sure foundation, which is your Word. Lord, please uh, help us this morning, help me this morning uh, to be faithful to your word. Please, uh, please help me to not say anything that, is, that does not need to be said. Um, and Lord, thank you, Father, for the encouragement and the strength and the edification that we draw and the nourishment that we draw from your word. Lord, just please bless this time this morning. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is basically part two. Uh, I, I can't help but think of one of my favorite shows, The Mandalorian. We were just talking about that earlier this morning. And, uh, you know, usually towards the end of a the season, they'll have the last two episodes are kind of a, kind of a two-parter kind of deal going on to where, the, you know, the first part will kind of give you a cliffhanger. The second one will kind of resolve that a little bit. So this is basically, this will be the end of season one, end of chapter one of John, basically. And the next time, we'll be going into season two or chapter two of John. So there we go. Uh, but this passage this morning, is actually, it's, it's a beautiful passage. It is the conclusion. Uh, like Seth was saying, this is, this is the fourth day that's mentioned in this chapter one. There, there are four specific days that the Apostle John talks about and shares from that are related to John the Baptist's ministry. And of course, you know, we, we see from Scripture and we, can, and we can draw from Scripture that the Apostle John was once, was once one of the apostles of John the Baptist or one of the disciples of John the Baptist. So we, we can kind of see that connection there. Uh, but just as a kind of reminder from the previous passage um, and from the, from the previous sermon, uh, I do want to share a couple of statistics with y'all. Y'all do know I do like my, my, my statistics, my stats. Um, so, that, so hopefully just bear with me this morning a little bit. Um, as we talked about last time, and the reason why I'm bringing this up again, this passage does deal with evangelism. Actually, the passage previous to this and this one both deal with practical evangelism. Um, and there was a statistic... Uh, in the State of Theology survey, uh, once again, this is developed and produced and uh, presented uh, by Ligonier Ministries. They usually do it every two years. Uh, the new data should be coming out here soon. It was not up there when I last looked. Uh, but usually every two years, they'll provide the survey uh, to evangelical church members. Uh, the sample size is about 3,002 people both men and women, both are, both are, and they're, uh, the only uh, respondents are supposed to be folks who are in church, 
who are supposedly evangelical. Just wanted to set that as kind of the background here. Um, so, like I said, uh, the, they have 35 questions in the survey. Each of those questions are kind of designed, well, each are true or false, and each are designed to be kind of a test question to gauge the health of the modern church. So this, is, uh, this was one of the questions that they asked here. And this is the one I shared last, last sermon. True or false, <clears throat> it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. I'm just going to read that again. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we saw that in the previous sermon. We're going to see it today. That, and that should be a pretty foundational, yeah, that's kind of part of the whole idea. Part of being a Christian is to evangelize, to share the gospel with folks. We are commanded by our Lord and Savior to do so. This is where things start to get very scary and very heartbreaking. 54% of the respondents said true or that they agreed with the statement. 46% said false, they disagreed, it's not important. Just a little bit below half said, nah, it's not important for me to, to, to share about Christ with, with a non-believer. It's not important basically to evangelize. Not my problem. Another question that the same survey asked, true or false, religious beliefs are a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Like I said, this is a test question. True or false, religious beliefs are a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 54% said they agreed with it. 34% said, no, I disagree with that. 12% said they were unsure. So it's pretty clear that we have some issues going on, even in the modern church today. Now, the good news is they can be dealt with. They can be addressed. They can be um, treated through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, through His grace and through His work. But there is some practical stuff we need to know we need to do too. Like being in the Word of God, seeking to apply it rightly. Now I understand, especially in relation to the previous question, there are going to be some things that, that as believers we're not always going to agree on 100%. I, get, I understand that. Uh, there are certain things that you know, we're just going to have different opinions on such as preferences of church, church government or church organizational methods or baptism, end times, views, eschatology. You know, we're, we're going to have some differing opinions on that. And some folks may prefer the ESV to the NASB, or some folks may prefer the, the King James or the New King James, and that's fine. That's okay. That's, that's all right. But there are definitely some issues that we have to agree on. There are some tier one issues that we have to hold to in order to even be called a Christian in the first place. And that includes the Holy Trinity. We have to be Trinitarian monotheist people 
One God and three persons. We have to hold to that. That's what Scripture teaches. The person of Christ, the person and nature of Christ, the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture in our lives as believers, the holiness and perfect nature of God, which, by the way, we're going over on, on Wednesday nights. Very wonderful class, by the way. Um, the doctrine of sin, and among others. But what we have to remember is that Scripture is our ultimate foundation. Scripture is where we're going to find the answers to our questions. Scripture, scripture is going to be the ultimate final authority in our life. Not our opinions. Not our feelings. Because, as you all probably know, opinions and feelings can be wrong. God's Word is never wrong. It's always true. And like 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, For all Scripture is breathed out, it's theonoustos by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in godliness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is what we need. So I just wanted to set that out first, to kind of lay the foundation there. Now as we get into the passage here, so this is the fourth, the fourth day, fourth sequential day. Jesus has decided, or if you read, I think, in the New American Standard Version, it says he purposed to go to Galilee. Jesus was very intentional about where he was going and why he was going there. This language um, is, is beautiful, and it tells us that, that, he, that the sovereign God has a plan for everything that he has uh, for everything he's doing. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, if you if all remember a few months ago, when I preached from John chapter 9 about the man who was born blind, and he had been kicked out of the temple by the Pharisees after they interrogated him and questioned him, it said that Jesus went out and found him. We see that same language echoed here in this passage. Jesus found Philip. The disciples were not the, ultimately the ones who chose Christ. He chose them, as he tells them in John 15, 16. And, you know, this is the same truth that can be applied to us as believers today. According to Ephesians 2, chapter 1 through 3, or verses 1 through 3, Prior to our salvation, Scripture says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Dead men can't do anything for themselves. The Lord came in through His grace and through His mercy, as we also see in Ephesians chapter 2, and gave us a new life in Christ. That's how, that's how, we, how, he, how we can respond this is the same truth that's evident today. Philip needed to be found and saved by Christ, just as we need to be found and saved by Christ today. By the way, that's the first point here in the sermon is, is found. Philip was found by the Lord Jesus. And then just like we saw in the previous passage that we went over about three Sundays ago, just like with Andrew and Peter, after Andrew had spent some time with Jesus and 
had learned from him and learned exactly who Jesus was, first thing he did was go and find his brother Peter and tell him, hey, Peter, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Come here. I need to show, I need to show him to you. Well, that's what happens here. Philip, after being found by the Savior, goes out to his buddy, Nathaniel, and tells him, hey, we have found the one that Moses and the law and all the prophets have been talking about. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Savior. He's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. He was proclaiming from Scripture, using evidence from the Old Testament to support his claim that Jesus is the one that fulfills all this. We found the one. We found the Savior. We found the Christ. Now, of course, the response is interesting. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's what, that's what you know, Nathaniel says. And of course, Philip to that says, come and see. Just come and see. Come on. I know you may be skeptical. I understand that. Just come with me and let me show, show you to him. Show him to you. I think you'll find, you'll, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. All Scripture points towards Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of everything in the New Testament. All the sacrificial system, all, all the, um, all, even the setup of the temple, everything ultimately finds its perfect fulfillment in Christ. And as we'll see here in just a little while, the, the vision that Jesus mentions at the very last verse in, in verse 51, that's, an old, that's a reference to an Old Testament vision, Jacob's Ladder. And we're about to see actually what that, what that means and how that relates to Jesus. <clears throat> and of course, we also see on the, on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus was resurrected, he went through the entire Old Testament and showed these disciples how, how it all pointed towards him. All of Scripture is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Just, just like Philip said here. And we also see, too, just a little, little interesting tidbit, uh, that Philip was from the same city as Peter and Andrew from Bethsaida. But we, all, but we see in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 29, that Peter's home was in Capernaum. And some people might wonder, wait a minute, isn't that kind of a contradiction? No, if we look into it a little bit further, we'll find a solution for that, for that issue. Most likely, according to the John MacArthur Bible Commentary, most likely Bethsaida was where Andrew and Peter were raised. They probably grew up in that, same, in that area. It's kind of like for me, when I grew up as a kid, as a teenager, I grew up in Altoona, towards the western edge of Etowah County, way out in the middle of nowhere. But when I got into college, I moved to Rainbow City. I spent most of the time in Rainbow City, and then, of course, now, Gary and I live in Southside. So it's true that, I've been, I, that I grew up in, that I lived in Bethsaida, or not, not Bethsaida, sorry, Altoona. I did not live in Bethsaida. <laughs> Andrew and Peter did that. <laughs> but I did live in Altoona, 
but now we live here in Southside. Both are true. So that's, probably, that's the most likely the resolution to that, to that issue. It's not really an issue. Second point I'd like to make from this passage. So the first one was found. The second one is seen. Seen. Verses 46 through 49. Nathaniel's response was to ask Philip, how could any good thing come out of Nazareth? And you might ask, why was he saying that? Back, in, back during this time, and even to a certain degree today in, in some places, um, Galileans and those from the surrounding area of Galilee did not look very kindly upon those from Nazareth. They just didn't. They, they were like, ah, those are those crazy folks from Nazareth. You know, it's kind of like, I guess, folks from, you know, I don't know, Rainbow City may think that they're better from Southside than Southside. I don't know. Hopefully not. But, you know, I think both are beautiful cities. But there's, there, there was some rivalry going on there. So, you know, that, that could be one reason. Also, uh, Nathaniel did not see from Scripture exactly how the Savior would come out of Nazareth. So that's one reason why he was kind of... That was probably the main reason why he was skeptical. Either way, he was skeptical. He was like, I don't know. You're telling me you found, that you found the Messiah, that you found the one that all of Scripture is pointing to, and he's out of Nazareth? I don't know. I, I, I know. But Philip gives the invitation, come and see, which... By the way, that's what Jesus says earlier in the previous passage to Andrew and Peter. Come and you will see. Because they ask, where are you staying, Rabbi? Come and you will see. So that's what he says. Come and see. Check him out. And he does. He does. Now when Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him, it says in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, is Jesus saying that, that Nathaniel was perfect? No, he was not. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and he needed a Savior, just like Philip did, just like we do. But, unlike the Pharisees and some of the other Israelites, and unlike one of the fathers of the Hebrew people, Jacob himself, who was kind of known for his trickery and deception for his early life. Nathaniel was not quite like that. He was skeptical, but he was willing to search out the truth. He was looking for the truth. And he was willing to look at Jesus and to see, okay, is, are you really who you... Who, who you say you are, or are you really who, these, who Philip is telling, telling me you are? So, he's looking at him, he's, he's, he's analyzing him, and apparently like, apparently, like I said, like Jesus said here, his nature, his general nature was to be willing to investigate the truth. Sometimes in our evangelism, we might find some people who are kind of skeptical. I've met those folks. I'd much rather find 
and be ministering to a slightly skeptical person than someone who is just absolutely dead set that I'm wrong, they are right, and they are not budging anywhere. I'll take the skeptic over, the, over that. Because usually once folks are dead set in an opinion, it's going to be extremely hard to convince them otherwise. And by the way, just to encourage y'all, it's not our job to move them. The Lord will move the hearts and minds of individuals. Our job is to simply share the gospel with them, to tell them we found the one of whom all the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks of, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Come and see. Let me introduce you to him. That's our job. The found seek other people to be found. And the Lord sees the hearts and minds of everyone. No, no, nothing we can do could hide what we truly believe and feel and think from the Lord. He sees everything. He is perfectly omniscient. And he shows that too by saying, after Nathaniel said to, to our Lord Jesus, how do you know me? In verse 48, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know what was going on under the fig tree. We don't know if, if, if maybe uh, Nathaniel was having some kind of devotional time. We don't, we don't know. It does not say. And it doesn't say anywhere else. But what we do know is that something there happened that only Nathaniel and the Lord himself could see and know or even that that, that that event happened. So when the Lord tells him that, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ tells him that before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, that was a beautiful demonstration of the perfect, sovereign, omniscient knowledge of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He was showing to Nathaniel. I am definitely 100% the God and the Savior that you are looking for. And I know you and I know where you've been better than anyone else ever could. You know, and, and my job as a hospice chaplain, which I'm very, very thankful for, I love what I get to do. I always like to encourage folks that the Lord sees and knows how you feel better than anyone else ever could. I may not know and understand how you feel. And I actually try not to ever tell anybody, I know how you feel. I understand your feelings. Because truthfully, I don't. There may be certain circumstances where I have an understanding of how someone may be feeling, but I certainly don't know all of them. My, my understanding, my, my knowledge of someone's emotions is often very limited. But the Lord, He knows us perfectly. He created us. His scripture says that He sustains us by the word and the entire universe by the word of His power. And we see in this passage here that He knew about Nathaniel in a way that no one else ever could. We don't know what happened there. And it doesn't say what happened there. And that's, that's irrelevant. The point is that the Lord knew. 
and he knows about us today. He loves us. And I will tell you, only Jesus knows us better than anyone else ever could. And only Jesus can save us from our sins, like Acts 4.12 says. And only he can provide perfect peace and comfort to those who are saved. Nathaniel was seen by Christ. Philip was, was seen by Christ. We are seen by Christ at every moment. Whether there's anybody else around or not, he's always there. And he knows us far, far infinitely better than anyone else ever could. Nathaniel's response, as we see in verse 49... Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. How beautiful and how proper of a response that is. That should be ours too. That should be ours too. Lord, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel and the King of the entire universe. You are sovereign over all things. You sustain all things by the word of your power. No one can stay your hand or, or say to you, what have you done? You are, you are in control of all things. And yet at the same time, the king of the universe, sovereign Lord of all, loved us so much that he was willing to come find his people because he sees them and he loves them and he, know, he knows them better than anyone else ever could. He was willing to do that and to die for his people. That's how much our king loves us. He didn't have to do that, but he was willing to. What a wonderful, amazing, beautiful love that is. And by the way, this is one of those tier one doctrines that I was talking about earlier. The lordship and the divinity of Christ Yes, he, he, he had a human body and human nature. But only God himself could know this kind of thing. That he was showing that he is God in human flesh right here. And we have to hold to the fact that when Jesus was here on this earth, he was both God and man. He's, and he's still that beautiful, perfect, hypostatic union that they call it. In, in theology. And how that works, I have no earthly idea. If you, if you figure it out, let me know. But I don't know. But, but it's a beautiful mystery. That even if we don't know the answer, it's fine. Scripture teaches it. So we need to hold to it. That's it. Ultimately. But that's one of those tier one doctrines. He is, he is God. He was God walking in human flesh. And he has that perfect glorified body that one day we'll have a glorified body like his. We won't be Lord. We're not going to be the God of the universe. He can, only he can be that. But we will have a glorified body like his glorious body. One day. One day. He's the one who, who did that first. The Savior was the one who did that first. Third and final point is, is, is being revealed. So we've, we've, been, we've seen something found by the Savior. We've seen, we've seen um, 
we've seen someone, multiple people seen by the Savior. And now we see how the Savior has revealed himself to us. Verses uh, 50 through 51. When Christ asks Nathanael if he believes in him, as, in, uh, as it says in verse 50 here, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. That response by Christ echoes very similar language that Jesus uses with Thomas after his resurrection. When he shows himself to Thomas and says, look, touch these touch marks in my hands and my feet and my side. I'm right here. I'm really who I said I am. And Thomas did, and he's like, my Lord and my God. And that was also, by the way, a very appropriate response. But after he said that, Jesus also said something. He said, You've seen and you believe because of what you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. We have the greatest demonstration of God's grace and mercy towards his people in this right here. A record right here. Now, true, we have some amazing and beautiful sights in the universe and in God's creation and by the way, creation speaks and yells out the glory of God and the splendor of God, absolutely 100%. But he has given us his very word. I mean, think, think about that. The God of the universe loved us so much that he was willing to give us his words in our language so that we can read them and study them and meditate on them and grow through them and, and hold to them. And, and enjoy the nourishment from them. Don't actually eat them now. Don't, don't do that. But, but, you know, they are perfect nourishment for us. Perfect in every way. We have that. Now, have we seen Jesus with our own eyes yet? No. Best Pastor Cohen just recently preached. Preached, preached about, and just like we um, just saw on Wednesday night, no one can see God and live except the beautiful um, example of Christ. But, he, but the same God who walked on this earth for 33 years gave us his word, and it's all ultimately about him and his love for his people. This is what we have. This is what we need. It's so beautiful. People have died throughout history just having a portion of it on their person. It's beautiful. It's worth so much. Both of these men, Nathaniel and Thomas, later, way later, have the same correct response. My Lord, my God, Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Perfect, beautiful response. That's exactly the way it should be. But we should ultimately trust in the Lord because of his word and his word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. This is what we use when we evangelize, and it's the only weapon we need, the only tool, ultimate tool that we need. And the, and the Holy Spirit will work through his word 
to affect the human heart and human mind. He's the only one who can. We can you can give all the arguments in the world. You could be eloquent in all of them. You could have the, the theological background and eloquence of, of R.C. Sproul combined with uh, John MacArthur, and then and and just and and you could have John Calvin's skill thrown in there, and whatever else you wanted to do, and that'd be great. But that's not going to change the human heart. Only God's word will do that, and only the Holy Spirit working through His word will do that. But He will do that. That's His will. And of course, we do have all creation proclaiming His glory. Finally, in verse fifty-one. We're getting to something really interesting. Jesus says here in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, first thing here, whenever we see something in Scripture repeated over and over, truly, truly, Jesus does this multiple times in the Gospels. But He does it in when he's trying to emphasize something that is, tr- that is extremely important. In Jewish language, in Jewish grammar, when they wanted to emphasize the importance of something, they would repeat it. They would use repetition. That's how, that, that's how, that they, uh, that's how they worked. You know, in the English language, we have other ways of kind of doing that. But in the, in the, in the Hebrew language and in Greek, too, this is what they would do. They would repeat a phrase over and over to emphasize its importance. So when Jesus is saying, truly, truly, he's like, look, listen up. This is important. You need to pay attention. I'm about to tell you something really important right now. So you need to just focus in, lock in. This, this phrase that I say to you that you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That refers to Genesis 28 verse 12, which is the vision of Jacob's ladder that the Lord gives Jacob. Now here's, now here's the cool thing. In Genesis 28, when the Lord gives Jacob this vision, Jacob sees the angels of God Ascending to heaven and descending from heaven on a ladder, and God is at the very top of the ladder, and they're going up and down that ladder. This passage says, in this verse, Jesus says, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Genesis 28 was pointing towards Christ. And Christ is expositing that vision, that passage. He's exegeting it. He's, he's, he's the one who wrote it. But he's pulling out of it exactly what was ultimately being intended to be taught. Which is the way to the Father is through Him alone. The miracles that, 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 that Philip and Nathaniel and all the other apostles will see, they are beautiful they are amazing i mean think about it peter and james and john got to see christ transfigured that's amazing that's beautiful but jesus is emphasizing here the ladder that y'all were reading about in the old testament that ladder's me i'm the one 
that will take you to the Father. Jesus says later on, John 14, uh, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jacob's ladder, that vision was ultimately pointing towards Jesus. Its ultimate fulfillment has been found in the Savior. And the Lord himself, who wrote that, who who gave that vision to Jacob, has revealed its ultimate meaning both to the immediate listeners and us today. So we've seen that Jesus has found his people, he sees his people, and he's revealed himself to his people. So just to recap that, just to recap, because we're almost done. Just like Jesus found Philip and Nathaniel, so are we as believers found by Christ today. As Christians, we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being made alive and forgiven in and through Jesus Christ alone. And this is important. We evangelize because we have been found. The found seek after more so that they could be found too. Point two, recap. Nathaniel was seen by Christ in a way that only God could see him because Christ is God. Our Lord Jesus sees us as believers in every way possible and knows us in every way possible. And he demonstrates that in love for his sheep, in compassion and comfort for us in times of our trial and suffering because he's promised us in his word that he would be the God of all comfort to his people. 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 1. I promise you, he will be that to you. If you need comfort today, he is the only true source of comfort. And he also shows his love and care for us in perfect loving discipline and conviction when we sin. Like a loving father, he will let us know. Not in condemnation as his people, but, but out of loving discipline. Finally, the Lord has given us his word, and it's through his word being applied to our redeemed human heart and human mind that we are able to see the beautiful revelation of who Christ is. The eternal Son of God, the perfect Son of Man, who suffered and died for his people, the King of Israel. He is the only, he is the one only Savior of those who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. Lord, we thank you that you've you've sent your son Jesus to us. Thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And thank you that we can approach you this morning because of him. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for this time together. And Lord, thank you, Father, for your word that you've given us. Um, Help us to trust in your word and to stand upon your word 110% 
each and every day by your grace and through your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name.